what it all comes down to. This is music. This is mayhem. This is a high voltage rock and roll podcast especially for you. Don't think because you haven't heard of us that we didn't exist. We've been here all along like a spirit roaming the night, seldom stopping to rest. Our path has been marked by the bolted skull and bones, smashed guitars, and starred stages across the world. Welcome to the full-on church of rock and roll. This is only the beginning. thought your read was very good for, for oh, I'm, oh presented by devil's crown which one is i got a bunch here i just had some yeah so devil's crown bloody mary mix our sponsor to the full-on church of rock and roll podcast so i'll tell you what i did with that i used it as a dipping sauce for my tortillas sounds like something you would do <laughs> and does. we need someone like you because you're probably the only one that would do it <laughs> well here's the deal I'm always used to, like, when you're on the road or whatever, there's not much room for your food, whether you're in a van or in a bus, right? So you have to come up with new ways to eat. Because I don't like fast food, even though I just had 30 nugs from Chick-fil-A today. Yeah, but that's God's meat. (laughs) (laughs) Hate bird. (laughs) Um, So you got to make it up. So I I do a lot with um, this brand. I know they're not a sponsor, but it is... Mission Carb Balance Flour Tortillas. <laughs> Maybe they will be a sponsor. And I use these for my meals, for my breakfast, and for my desserts. I grew up on the Mission Tortillas. They're good. It's the white man's tortilla. Is that what it is? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I put cheese in there sometimes. For dessert, I'll, I'll use like uh, whipped cream. Whipped cream, which is very good in there. Interesting. So I, I tried the Devil's Crown. And? It's what really good, man. It's... More than just a Bloody Mary mix. It Way is. more than that. I, I wouldn't even... I don't I wouldn't drink. even call that. Yeah, yeah, so I wouldn't use it, in, but I'm sure if you drank, it, well, it tastes really good. I gave a bottle to Rick Thorne the other day, and he doesn't drink as well, and he said, that's fantastic. I want to make hot wings with this. Yeah. yeah. He's a chef. Yeah. So let me ask you this. When you normally make a Bloody Mary, do you use like V8 or, or just regular... Uh, that's what they tell me. I personally have had Bloody Mary once in my life, and I was like, I will never be drinking that again. I have two, and I said, next time, warn me. <laughs> but then that takes mouthful the fun of, away. Mouthful of pennies. She's like, don't you want to use a towel? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, what's it called? Devil's Crown. Devil's Crown Bloody Mary Mix. Find it. Where is it available, Keelan? Devilscrownmix.com. And there is an Instagram and... There's a huge thing going on right now on their website where if you put on the full-on code, you get 20% off your order. Isn't that great? Isn't that nice of them? Premium Bloody Mary mix. It's not your average well tomato sauce. How do you think Paul Stanley would advertise this? First, he'd be like, how you doing, people? (laughs) Some of us like vodka and orange juice, but I drink devil's crown. (laughs) I'm literally going to have a heart attack. So we got a special guest. We talk about Van Halen all the time. So we thought uh, we'd bring in Ron Jeremy today <laughs> to discuss his Van Halen memories. Ron Jeremy's going to jail, right? He's in prison. Oh, he's in prison? Fuck around, find out, Ron Jeremy. He would always be asleep at the rainbow, right? 
Yeah, it's always funny. I mean, you, you can really tell a, a tourist in this town because they'll put up somewhere on social media like, I was at the Rainbow and I saw Ron Jeremy and they put yeah. up the picture. That's the first thing people post. I'm like, that's the first thing you want to post? So no. So we do have a special guest today, Greg Renoff, who to me wrote one of the best. And I know we talked about books when Carlos Ramirez was on. But Greg Renoff wrote the book um, Van Halen Rising, a, a Southern California backyard party band saved uh, heavy metal, right? How? I was, I was reading that off the computer. I don't know if you could tell. Well, I'll try to drink a protein drink. This part will not be edited out. Um, it's it's one of the best books I have ever read about a band. I mean, it, it gets in there so deep. And we're going to hear about all this stuff again. And it gets even better when he writes a book about Ted Templeman, who was the producer of every at least notable Van Halen record, I think, all the way up until 84. Yeah. Then goes into producing Eat Him Smile. Smile, Crazy from the Heat, EP, before yeah. that. I've never heard that. You never heard that mm-hmm. album? I've I mean, it's not an album, you know? that, yeah. But that's what got David to think I can do this on my own. Yeah. So I actually thought that was pretty amazing that Ted stayed on with Dave after everything else. Did Ted ever produce any Sammy Sam, Van Hagar albums? I would have no fucking idea. I'm I know. I don't think he did. That's the question. Well, I know. I know they wanted him to do the first one, but he was contracted to do Eat Him and Smile, the Dave Lee Roth album, which to me is the best. I wish the Van Halen album sounded like that. That album to me sounds great. <laughs> and then and then I know we're talking about like like Ted Templeman's going to be on. But then we had Ted I mean, and then Ted was going to do the next one. What was the next Dave Lee Roth album? Oh, that would have been Skyscraper? Skyscraper. And then I think Dave Lee Roth like kind of pulled the rug out from underneath him and used the guys that just did Aerosmith or something. What Ted did, Done With Mirrors. Ted uh, Ted did do that. That was a failure for Aerosmith. It was a big (laughs) deal because Joe was just coming back into Aerosmith, so it was supposed to be the big reunion album. It was a horrible album. Horrible album. Let the Music Do the Talking is the best song on there, which is already on Joe Perry Project. Yeah. Before that. He also did Woke Up With a Monster by Cheap Trick, which I love that album. But the record company, Warner Brothers, messed that up, which, which is a yeah. bummer. You're the one that got me into that. Um, you don't see the Cheap Trick logo on the album cover, so you immediately are like, well, eh. Yeah. Isn't that shocking to take something as little as that to be like, eh? No. I mean, it, I mean people have to understand. That's like with Kiss. like that, Their logo works. It's Or Nine Inch Nails. like Those logos are those that logos. works. You know what well, I mean? Especially when you become a band like those guys. Montrose, Ted yes. produced the first Montrose mm-hmm. album, which I think is killer. Yeah, dude. If Sammy it's stayed classic. in his lane. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, I like the Van Halen stuff with him, though. I know you don't. So I'm pretty sure like that's where that story came from, where um, they wanted Sammy... Warner Brothers wanted Sammy to sing from Van Halen from, from the get-go. Oh, I heard that story, yes. Yeah, so it must have been that. Well, on top of that, so Ted does Montrose with Sammy. He also does VOA, Sammy's solo album, mm. which was in 84... When Van Halen was also doing 84. So talk about like the worlds colliding in the same time as Roth is leaving Van Halen. Ted, who has been with Van Halen since the beginning, is also producing Sammy's solo. So something tells me Ted had a lot to do with Sammy joining Van Halen. <clears throat> that, that's weird because it's like you have a guy producing the album for the guy who's going to replace the singer in Van Halen while Van Halen's doing their biggest album with Don Landy. And Ted's been with Sammy since Montrose too. So it's like... There was conversation going on, like, is Sammy the guy for us? You yeah. Know? 
and yeah. he was definitely involved in that conversation. And then uh, we have we had Jimmy DeAnda on here, drummer from Bullet Boys, a few episodes back, and as you heard, he uh, produced their album as well, which is kind of a big deal because those guys were huge Van Halen fans, and we're totally going down the resume of <laughs> Ted's <laughs> discography, though, but even it's fascinating. Even though he's not going to be on here, yeah. But I mean, so Greg, who you know, I don't, I want to like keep Greg's conversations for when he jumps on, but. Yeah. Uh, that's just the whole world that uh, Greg had to discover for himself as well. Reading, so he wrote this book with Ted. He got Ted's story out, and uh, so it's it's an autobiography. Just Greg helped uh, write it, I believe. Correct? That I don't know. We'll we'll get the exact confirmation. Who's that um, it, it's just kind of weird, you know. Some of the stuff. I wonder how much Ted had to do with Van Halen's records after the first one. Because it seems like something that that Eddie would have really thrown himself into. There, there's parts, man, like so on. Fair warning, but on. So this is love, and it starts, you know, with that grand funk opening and with the bass and the drums and all that, and the you know, before the Oakland scarf. And then when the singing comes in, it all gets turned down at the same time. It's just like I, I just I've never heard anything like that where a song starts up here and then they just turn down all the music so the vocals can lay over, and they left it, and it's fine. Yeah, maybe Greg will talk about the production. Yeah. <laughs> and as promised, here is our special guest, and a very special guest that it is. It's Greg Renoff, who wrote the book Van Halen Rising. Do you want to say the full title? How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal? So, Greg, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Appreciate you guys having me on. No problem at all. Um, you know, your book, Van Halen Rising, for me... We, we had an episode a couple of weeks ago with um, some, some music critics and, and actually Ralph from Steel Panther. And we were talking about our favorite rock books and, and books. Because to me, um, when it comes to writing the history of rock and roll, and I know that you were a history major, that is American history to me. Um, so your book for me, along with Spray Paint the Wall by Steve Chick, which is a black flag book, and ACDC Maximum Rock and Roll by Murray Englehart. Those to me, that's the the holy trinity of these of these rock and roll books. Um, so I'm just curious a little bit about your background. I know in reading on the back of the book that you were a history major. Like, what brings you to this point that you're going to write about Van Halen? Yeah, I mean, uh, so my my childhood, my teenage years were probably like a lot about you got like you guys. I had an uncle who introduced me to rock music when I was young. It didn't really take fully hold, but he told me about mountain and he told me about deep purple. And he told me about some almond brothers, particularly some of these groups. And, you know, when I got to be uh, about 13 or 14 MTV became part of my life, like everybody else in America at that time I was a teenager and uh, discovered Van Halen. And uh, I just loved hard rock and heavy metal as a teenager. Uh, you know, I just really was someone who really devoured music. Uh, it was a huge part of my, my uh formative years i mean that was just really it was really important to me and then uh yeah as you guys mentioned i went off to grad school uh after undergrad and got a phd in american history and uh actually was a college professor for about 15 years 10 years or so whatever it was 12 years and you know for me i never stopped being interested in rock music and i would read about it and i actually read stevie chick's book uh which is a really good book spray paint the walls and uh when i was still a professor and for me when i started thinking about bands that I loved and bands that I was interested in, Van Halen was always one of my favorites. And I kind of realized that there was a 
a kind of a void of information about their early years. Mm-hmm. I thought when you looked at bands like Zeppelin or Who, uh, the Stones, I mean, you could read books that were like granular in their detail about how the Stones formed, granular in their detail about how the Who formed. And there really wasn't a book like that about Van Halen. And that's where I kind of got interested. Uh, I had saw uh, a couple of snippets of information in different interviews like Circus Magazine. I mean, you would see like snippets of things like uh, two sentences from David Lee Roth about wet t-shirt contests or three sentences from Eddie about backyard parties. And that's sort of what started my interest in this. And I never had a real ambition to write a book about Van Halen when it started. It was just, I thought, uh, you know, as part of my academic career, I was going to, uh, you know, basically do this on the side as a fun project. And it's sort of just snowballed into a book. So uh, that's the, I mean, that's really the story of how it happened. I, it was a long running thing for me, a long running love of Van Halen. I read every guitar magazine interview with Eddie. You know, I read all the Rolling Stone interviews and just the, you know, Circus Magazine, Hit Parade or Riff Magazine, all these magazines, I would buy them and read them. And so that was, you know, it was always part of my, in my uh, consciousness. And as a historian, you kind of are, are kind of geared towards trying to think about how did something come together and what happened. And then, as I said, I really thought like you'd read Wikipedia. And it just, there wasn't really a, a definitive source, I thought, that would talk about how Van Halen went from meeting with David Lee Roth up to playing stadiums, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, all of that being said, and you're right, Van Halen, much like Cheap Trick, had, a, had this history that was just a sentence here or there. It's like Gene Simmons discovered them and they played covers right. and all that stuff. You don't realize, and, it, and in your book, and I don't want to give away the stories because I think everyone should read this book, but like the, the role that, say, Jackie Fox from The Runaways had in going to Gene Simmons saying, you have to see this right. band and, and Rodney too. Right, right. So, I mean, right. Well, and that was part of the thing too, that was, was so rewarding about doing the book is that when you, you know, when I started doing the research for it at first, you know, I, at the time I was living in Missouri, I live in Oklahoma now. And so you can imagine I'm trying to talk to people on the West coast, mostly who, who are, uh, um, people who grew up, either in Pasadena or contemporaries of Van Halen one way or the other as musicians. And, you know, there was sort of this, this sort of quizzical, like, like, why do you want to write this book? And, uh, but you know, when I would get to kind of start to put the pieces together as it was going along, and then I got to talk to someone like Jackie Fox, who you mentioned, who was fantastic to talk to, you know, you realize there was this whole backstory that was there that hadn't really been laid down. And, you know, I think even, with Van Halen rising, if I had spent like another three years, I still could have done more. Like I could have made like a 500 page book, Mm. you know, just kind of filling it, filling in more holes and just kind of fleshing things out more fully. But then you get someone like Jackie who sort of explained like, Oh, you know, I'll I'll tell the story, which is basically that she and Lita were hanging out when they were in the runaways with Gene and Paul and, and Gene was interested in trying to start a record label. And Paul was seemed like he was sort of interested in that as well. And wanted to find some bands in LA and they presented the boys and Van Halen to Gene and Paul as ideas basically sitting around the pool and in, in, you know, in Hollywood with those guys going, Oh, you should check out Van Halen. You should check out the boys. Do you think these are the two best groups and, you know, unsigned groups? And that was sort of how that all got to be going. And no one had really talked to, you know, as Jackie said, she said, you know, I, I didn't, you know, she, I, I don't think I put this in the book, but basically she's like, you know, I didn't become famous. And so no one really ever asked me about this. Like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're asking, I'm glad you're asking me because no one really ever asked me about it because, you know, she was just sort of somebody who had her career as a, uh, runaway and then kind of went on to different things in life so it was it was great to have that uh insight from her yeah she's a very smart human being jackie fox is 
and um so when you when you say the boys just so people know that was george lynch and mick brown that were ended up in docking i believe right yep Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yep. So they they were the hot shots there for a while, and they were more, according to Jimmy Dana, who we had on from Bullet Boys, they were sort of like, and you say it in your book, they were more accessible, and you know Van Halen, and I'm glad you bring this up in your book about Captain Beyond and Cactus because that early Van Halen stuff is not that easy to take in because it was a little bit different, it was a little more adventurous, and and all of that. So, I mean, it's it's that kind of stuff that you put in your book that makes it such a great, great read for me. It, it's almost like a movie. So maybe yeah. one day, God willing, God willing, we'll watch a fantastic movie. We'll be, right. That would be great. Yeah. But I appreciate I, you saying that. Yeah. I think about that when I read the book too, because it's all about, like you just said, the upbringing. I mean, and American history, I think they are America's greatest rock band. Uh, we've talked about it before on here. Uh, so it's good to have the backstory of how they first grew up and if there would be a movie on Van Halen, people are kind of tired of like them playing the big arena shows. They want to see like how it all started and I think this would be the closest thing to get to that kind of, even in any Van Halen book, this is the only one showing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you, you have... Well, I mean, yeah, I think that's the... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think, you know, obviously I'm biased towards the book I wrote, but I think a lot of times... The, um, the struggle story is more interesting than the we made it story. Now, it doesn't mean like, obviously, like, let's face it, like from like 72 from 79 with Zeppelin is pretty damn interesting. I mean, I'd, read, <laughs> I'd watch a movie about that any day of the week. Yeah. But I think a lot of times people kind of over, they're like, oh, I, you know, when they're famous, that's when all the cool stuff happens. Where I think, you know, I think a lot of people who've seen movies like Straight Outta Compton or um, The Social Network or some of these other movies that kind of talk about the struggle. The, the, right. And there are, you know, there are other ones like the Rocky is another one. Like Rocky is another one. Like basically that, like how do you go from being no, a no one to being famous? That yeah. that's a really interesting and I think um, appealing storyline for people. It's, so it's the meat uh, potatoes. I always love those books. Yeah, yeah. Like because uh, the when they make it stories, everyone's is kind of the same. Like oh, the, yeah. the drugs, the sex, the rock and roll, the big shows. It's all big blurry, even to the people that were involved in, in those times. But where everyone separates is how they got to that point. So this is, um, yeah. And you well, don't, and that's the other thing I was going to say about Van Halen rising too, is that for my approach to it, 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 you know, it, I had sort of reached maximum saturation with that type of narrative, like the sex and drugs with, with books like the dirt. And I'm not at all criticizing the dirt. Right. I mean, you know, it's like an amazing book and it's like, but you sort of read, it's like, it's like peak sex, drugs and rock and roll. Like how can you like, you, you know, for me, it sort of became, I'm going to focus more on just the, the, the musical roots and the formation of the band and kind of, because it just becomes after a while, it just becomes, I think they become like they're all everyone. I feel like everyone who wrote those types of books or told those types of stories is all trying to like out dirt the dirt. And there's, yeah. like, there's no yeah. way to do that. It's like, yeah. like I'm going to make a better, I'm not going to, not going to make a better shark movie than Jaws. <laughs> I mean, you can, you know, exactly. I'm not going to make a better mob movie, mob movie than the Godfather probably. I mean, there are a lot of great <laughs> ones and other people wrote, other people wrote great rock biographies that have kind of really do that, you know, that stuff. But I just felt like it was just, you know, I didn't want to try to go into that um, realm because I just felt it was, it was, uh, yeah, it didn't kind of, there was no way to kind of match that. But the thing about the Van Halen Rising book, and I know it came out a couple of years ago, so I'm sorry, if, you know, you've probably been asked these questions a million times. But like when, no, you, I don't mind. when you read like Dave Marsh and, you know, about the who, and so it's very surface for me because, it's stuff that happened, and, and it is like writing a history book if you're writing like about Ben Franklin. But in your book, 
Dude, I swear I could picture the Van Halen Brothers room the way you described it with the big Marshall in between the beds and just the size of it. You know what I mean? And and you, there's things you touch on like the Imler party, which is fascinating to me. I, I read that chapter about four times because it was so vivid and you can almost, you know, time travel to that moment and see what was going on. That's just to get those people because everyone said they, they've been to those Van Halen parties, but you found the actual people who threw the parties and that is unbelievable. And uh, if if uh, people who um, may not visit my Twitter, check out the Twitter feed uh, that I have. That I put up. So I, it was the most incredible thing. So I hope you guys don't mind taking this detour with you. Is that like five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, when I was working at Van Halen Rising, I spoke to this woman named Mary, and she said, you know, we have a there's a reel of Super 8 film that was shot at the Ilmer party, but it's dark and you can't see anything. And, you know, it's one of these things that, you know, obviously I believed her that she shot this film, but I'm like, okay, it's in a box somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's in a shoebox. It's probably, the film is probably completely wrecked at this point. It's, you know, movie film. It's 50 years old. It's probably not any good anymore, 40 years old, whatever it is. And she told me a few years ago, I'm going to get it developed. And I never really heard back from her. And I just said, hey, cool, you know, whatever. I didn't um, really follow up with it because it was just one of those things. You don't want to be badgering somebody. She said she's going to do it. Okay, great. You know, let me know if you do it. And uh, like three two, three weeks ago, she messaged me. She goes, I just put it in the mail to you. And I was like, mm. oh. And then so she said it was so dark. And uh, it came, and it is a three or four minute reel. Uh, it came out of, you know, it was a, it was a, a move, uh, uh, MP4 file, basically, you know, a, a QuickTime file. And it was this reel, silent, and it is dark. But if you sort of lighten it up, I lighten it up the best I could brighten it up. And um, there's no sound, but it's about two or three minutes of Van Halen playing in the Inler backyard. And there's actually footage of two or three um, shots of the police cars. It's blurry, mm-hmm. but you can see the red, white flashing, blue lights flashing. There, it, it, I was just my mind was blown because you have these, you know, ten or twelve second shots of Eddie Van Halen playing on his left paw with the kind of glittery clothing. And again, it's not very vivid because the color. It was they shot it. You know, they they shot this not knowing what was going to happen. It was in the dark in this backyard with like a one spotlight that was on one member at a time. <laughs> but you know, that's sort of like the time travel thing. Like you said, like you talked about how you can visualize your mind. When I saw that, it was just, it just was incredible. It was just incredible. And so I appreciate you saying that because I had the great resource of having people who threw the party, all three of the siblings who threw the party and their siblings talked to me and then a lot of their friends. And it was, again, it was one of these things that, you know, everybody went in Pasadena. You know, yeah. it was like it was like if you were a teenage teenager into rock music, it was like the thing to you know that was the thing to do on weekends in that era. And people went, and there was a thousand people in the backyard. So there's and you know when you talk to so many people, I talked to probably probably fifty people that went to that party, at least fifty people mm. um, out of the two hundred and fifty people or so I interviewed. The stories start to all sound the same, and you're like, these people are telling the truth. You know, it's like yeah, it's exactly. like yeah. I mean, it's like it's like it's really the stories overlapped, and it was. Um, I mean, that was just one of these things that I, I really feel very uh, appreciative of the people in Pasadena I got to talk to. And just that uh, it uh, was able to be, yeah, I appreciate you saying that, to be able to recreate it on paper that way because it was such a vivid story. The stories were so vivid, people were telling. And it was just because it was, you know, I try to explain to people, you know, we've all had those experiences. You know, maybe you're in high school and you play football and you scored the touchdown in the state championship. Like you remember that so vividly because it was so important to you. And that's for a lot of people, like this was like, peak Van Halen for them mm-hmm. because you know they tell me like I saw Van Halen in the stadium later and it wasn't the same because I'd seen them in a the backyard 
You yeah. know, it was like, I, I've seen them at the whiskey, but I've seen them in this back, I've seen them in backyards where they played like somebody's, you know, somebody's wedding and stuff. And, you know, they, so that's for them, those memories of Van Halen are super important and super vivid because it was so up close and so personal and they could talk to the guys. And it was, you know, just a different thing than going to see a concert at a, an arena um, a decade later or something like that. Yeah, I, I did see that footage. And to me, it was like the Zapruder film because, like I said, I had read that chapter so many times. And when I saw you put that up, I'm like, I mean, it all just came, it, you know what I mean? It, it was just, and it's exactly how I pictured it. Just the, even the way the girls looked and smoking the cigarettes and, man, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Such a, such a golden time. It was, yeah, it, it was, it was the, uh, I mean, you can see the glittery. If you look, you can see like Ed has some glittery clothes on. Mike is wearing kind of glittery clothes and Ross has these like bracelets on and Eddie's playing the Les Paul and, uh, you know, even Alex's drums. If you look at Alex's drums, you can see they have a, uh, it's, again, it's a dark, it's a fairly dark film, but you can see there's a, a microphone inside the bass drum, which means, of course, they had a PA system, yeah. in, a PA system in the backyard of this. Can you imagine the neighbors, how mad they I were know. on this? It's, it's like incredible. It's like incredible, right? It's just amazing. And it's so funny because, um, like, that party must have been like the last straw. And you talk about it in your book where the where the police were just over it. And that kind of went into the punk, you know, where black flag parties and suicidal parties started to get broken up for the yeah. same reason. Like, it was Van Halen that started that to get rid of all these parties, which is great. You know what I mean? It, 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 yeah, it's definitely true. I mean, a lot of people talked about that, that it was sort of like, used to be like a year before the Inler party, which is again, this is like the fall of 74 this happened in Pasadena. And the police just been kind of kind of break it up and it's come and go home and they like, you know, pull the power and just, you know, but they, um, this one was so big and so raucous and they were blo basically blocking this fairly large road was being blocked by people trying to get into the, I mean, kids were just supposedly just like abandoning their like double parking their cars. Like, like, Oh, it's fine. You know, there's already cars parked here illegally. Let's just double park. And the cops, yeah, they actually was the, uh, the Charlotte LA Sheriff's department that broke it out. They, they were really, really rough. I mean, really rough, uh, with kids. I mean, you know, batons, you know, tear gas people said whatever pepper pepper yeah, smoke pepper. whatever like kind of like yeah, like it was like you know like these things it's interesting too it's like a lot of these guys as ross mentioned in his book a lot of these cops are like vietnam vets yeah you know exactly <laughs> so they're like you know it's like they were like perfectly prepared to go in and be like really violent with these kids and so it, it was it was a very that's, that's all the stuff that kind of made it sort of a legendary event and you're right it sort of it sort of made the, that sort of sizable backyard party still happen but they never really were that big ever again in with Van Halen in that era, they never, it never happened like that. And I think you did a really great job translating that fact that it was it, very cordial at first of just pulling the plug and we, we won't come back to busting heads. And it's, you know, growing up in, in an era when that stuff was happening, it, it brought back a lot of memories. So, and again, I don't want to give away a lot of, cause I want people to read this book, but you know, there's a couple things like your whole chapter on the, the golden West, um, show opening for ufo that to me was another one where i, I could picture it. it's like a documentary to me because i i have that show i hear when eddie's guitar goes out and alex fills in with a drum solo and now i know it was happening behind the scenes and it's dude it's just so amazing for me like you really created this portal it's so great the uh appreciate that the uh the thing that the uh the golden west was one of these in i don't know what the word is like at least basically like you said the windows into the path you know, if you, I, I knew nothing about the Golden West Ballroom, and it quickly mm -hmm. became clear that like, there was this whole concert uh, network in Los Angeles that, you know, was kind of off the map with something like the Golden West Ballroom. The Golden West Ballroom, to people who are listening know, was a, like a 1920s era, 1930s era Western swing ballroom. It was basically like a big room with a stage and a nice wooden floor. Sort of like Kane's. The owner, 
Right. Like Kings. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the owners were struggling financially. And eventually in like the early seventies, and you can imagine there's like almost no one using this facility. They decided to start letting a local promoter book rock bands and bands that like, like, you know, you know uh, Black Oak, Arkansas, Journey, Eddie Money. I think there was a bunch of bands that would go through there and UFO was one of them. But a lot of times during the week, it was just local bands. There was, you know, it would be like three unsigned bands on a Tuesday night or something like that. But this is one of these bigger, um, bigger performances. And that's one of the reasons why you know, people like Mark Kendall from Great White, Jackie Fox and Lita Ford were there. Uh, Rodney Bingenheim were all there to see, to see UFO and uh, to kind of really realize that that was, you know, kind of where Van Halen really had the ability to practice their stage show. It was a fairly, you know, it was a, it was a not a little, little postage stage, uh, postage stamp that stage with a fairly big stage and a fairly big room. You know, you kind of got to get to understand between that and the Pasadena Civic, which is another place they placed, which was another, you know, uh, basically like a, a civic center hall mm-hmm. that they would set up stages in. And they had the ability to put on these fairly, you know, as an unsigned band, elaborate rock shows and kind of go at it rather than just sort of playing clubs. You know, they weren't just playing like tiny stages or like backyards. They got to kind of, you know, uh, test drive their stage techniques before they went on the road with journey and then Montrose and Sabbath and all this stuff in 78. So yeah, it's kind of realizing that all these like the runaways played it, the golden West, all these bands played there. And from like 76 to about 79 and Van Halen was gone by 78, but it was really an interesting, um, a way to sort of see the rock scene in LA rather than just like who played the forum or played the whiskey. Yeah. I mean, and, and like you you said, like, and that's a smart move for them to, to build their act outside of LA. And I know that, you know, they were stuck at Gazzari's, which at the time wasn't the best thing. And it wasn't until the Starwood. but I mean, the way you're descriptive, you just, you know, the girls with the, the skin peeling off their nose from being at the beach, man, it's just beautiful. I, I can't tell you. Cause I grew up in that time we were talking about the first time I saw the Stones, which was on the Some Girls tour, and all I remember is one girl just dancing like crazy to Beast of Burden, and she looked just like you described, and and it's it's yeah. just magic. There's a magic time, um, you know. And another thing that you you brought up in there in that book is Eddie Van Halen. You you really do the history of of tapping in, in Eddie Van Halen, and when you listen to that Golden West show. Like he plays eruption and he plays it all except for the part where he does the hammer-ons and it's still right. just as good, just as right. impressive because of his attack. Uh, it's, it's in his hands. Right. It's insane. So, yeah, the, the tapping stuff is really, that was really a difficult, um, thing to put together. I got a couple of, you know, I had a couple of breaks where I talked to a couple of people, but you know, Eddie was always really pretty cagey about that. Uh, you know, God rest his soul. I, I think, that just like a magician who didn't want to give away his secrets. I mean, I think that was part of the deal. And I think that's, I, you know, I never really thought like people like criticize Eddie for that or whatever. I'm like, well, you know, you don't see, you know, you, again, you didn't see David Copperfield going, well, actually here's how I, <laughs> yeah. you know, here's how I do this or how I learned to do this. You know, it was, it was kind of the, the secret that you didn't give away. And, uh, but you know, I think that was the thing that in thinking about Eddie and Ted Templeman and about the signing of Van Halen, that really grew as an idea and became much more clear in my mind once I worked on the book for a couple of years, two or three years, is that he really started to realize, like you say, if you listen to bootlegs of Van Halen in 76 or even early 77, if you listen to the Ted Templeman demo that was done in the mm-hmm. spring of 77, Eddie's not tapping, right? That's sort of, you know, for whatever happened where he was exposed to it, he saw it, you know, Terry Kilgore, who was, was, probably as important as anyone to kind of helping kind of put that together with Eddie 
um, picking up some stuff from Terry that Terry had learned. You know, Eddie, you know, Terry basically said to me one day, he's like, you know, Eddie wouldn't have, wouldn't have really unleashed that that way, you know, until he was like ready. Like he, mm-hmm. he, he knew, basically he knew, he knew this is, the, you know, this is pretty fucking, excuse my language, pretty original. This is, di- this is different. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, I kind of all came together for Eddie in that, that time period in 77, the summer of 77, that would have been the Stratocasters with the humbucker, the tremolo bar, the tapping, the the variac kind of getting the tone with the marshals down, all that stuff kind of came together where you could hear, like you mentioned on some of the other earlier stuff. It's amazing. It's like, wow, this guy, this kid is incredible. Uh, but that was kind of made it like a whole game changer with the harmonics and the dive bombs and the whole, the whole Eddie Van Halen overwhelming presence on the guitar that, that shocked everybody in 78 when the album came out. And you, you can hear that in the summer and the fall of, of 77. And yeah. that's when they recorded the, that's when they recorded the album, you know? And so my, I mean, it's a long winded way of me saying is like, if they had recorded with Gene Simmons in 76, they'd made a Van Halen record in 76. There would have been no tapping. Yeah. Right. If Gene had gotten, if Gene had gotten what he wanted, which is get them in the studio and basically do a record, like in, probably would have done it like around Christmas time of 76 when Gene was still home, not on the road, do this album really quick. It wouldn't have sounded anything like, the Van Halen record because the tapping would have been missing, but that's such an important part of the Eddie Van Halen and the Van Halen sound clearly. Yeah. Because before that, like on those early stuff, he's clearly, you can tell there's an influence from Jim McCarty out of, from, from cactus. Right. You know what I mean? The way we, right. he holds the notes, the way he hits the notes. So you're exactly right. Then it became his own style. He always had his own style, but you could, you could hear other players in him, even the Jeff Beck stuff he always talked about. But then once it's, and, and that's another part, just not to jump around. You talked about 77, but Man, I got goosebumps the first time I read that book when you talk about the day at the races, Queen show, and that's the day that oh, Van yeah. Halen got signed. Yeah. That gives me, to this day, it gives yeah. me goosebumps. You just picture him at the forum yeah. walking up to someone like, we got signed today. It's like magic. So again, that's where I got to give a lot of credit. Yeah, I appreciate that. I got to give a lot of credit to the guys I got to interview. So those two guys, Gary and uh, Carl, were in Dread Zeppelin. Okay. So they were LA local guys who played cover bands and, and you know basically played with the Van Halen guys. You know, the Van Halen guys were, were much better in terms of their like following and bigger and, you know, but they were, these guys were, um, new Eddie and Alex and they, you know, and so to have those guys tell me about that, was just incredible. They were like, yeah, you know, we had bumped into them at this, this show and, and, uh, Carl was very, you know, he remembered it very distinctly and, you know, like, oh, we just got signed. We just signed a deal. They basically finalized the contracts with Warner brothers and, you know, we got paid $30,000 or whatever. And so like, you know, uh, to have those guys who were both guitar players. Uh, Gary, uh, Gary played bass in Dread Zeppelin, but Gary's a, an amazing guitar player. And Carl was the guy who kind of played like Heartbreaker solos and all those solos you remember from Dread Zeppelin. That's mm-hmm. Carl. To have those guys as guitar players as well was a huge resource for me because they kind of, you know, were able to look at Van Halen not just as a band but also as a musical thing, especially as guitar players, and give me the kind of their insights on what Eddie was doing and how he was growing as a player and you know what they thought about Roth and you know it, it was really, I was very fortunate to have so many. Um, great people to interview who got to really experience it close up. You know, they saw it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how do you, you know, your, your first book was about circuses in, in George and I'm going to buy that book right now. I honestly, and I, I apologize. I didn't know that book existed, but I'm very fascinated in that kind of culture. And I'm very excited to read that based on your writing style. I mean, how does your, your history degree help you in researching something like this? I mean, it's, it's like trying to research American history. Yeah. Um, so I think what I brought to the table 
as a person writing this book was that I had been trained in the methods of how to do this type of book in a way that would really not leave big holes in it. There were, as I mentioned, there were things that I wish I could have done in more detail or had, if I had had more time or, I mean, again, you could write a book forever, like to not be finished with it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, that, that, when you get a PhD in history, when you go to grad school, I mean, that's all you do is you, you uh, read lots of books. <laughs> so you kind of learn like how to basically put a book together. And then you also learn how to research. And that was, you know, in doing the circus book, which is, you know, it's a different type of book. It was more of an academic book, but, you know, I, I really got to do a tremendous amount of newspaper research in the 19th century and really got to think about how to, how to sketch out and put together these stories of these performances, these circus performances. And I think that did, you know, definitely contributed to my um, way I approached Van Halen Rising was that you really think about the shows matter to people. You know, it's like the music matters, the band matters, the records matter, but the performances matter so much. Uh, and that was something that I really wanted to try, like you said, with the Imler Party, and really try to capture the excitement of going. To, like, it was a huge thing to go. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. one woman telling me, like, I would be, she's like, I would be so excited. Like, it'd be, t- it'd be Wednesday, and I'd have a flyer in my notebook, basically, at school, or my textbook. And I'd look at it, and like, I couldn't wait. And she said, remember, she told me, she'd like, I, you know, we'd, we'd drive around, and we'd find the party, just roll on the windows, you could hear the noise, and go, okay, we're close. I'm not sure the exact address is dark. You can't see the house numbers. We park and she's like, I get this electric feeling through my body because I knew hmm. we were going to see Van Halen. And she's like, and again, this is when Van Halen was just a local band, you know, and that that's what I really wanted to bring to the table as a, as a historian to kind of capture that full experience of the, of what it was like to go to these parties, to, to be around uh, a band like that. That's so good. Um, even though they were unknown outside of Los Angeles. And so uh, that was, I think that, you know, kind of thinking about the way people consume music, and how to document that and try to get that translated from people's explaining it to me on the paper. I mean, that's, that's what, you know, being a historian by, a, by trade kind of, I thought helped in terms of doing that. What led you to become a historian? What led you to specialize in American history? Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I really grew up, my dad was a professor. He was a sociologist and, uh, you know, that was the thing we actually had in common when they would be like, you know, he used to take me to baseball game and, uh, to the library. I mean, that was what he, he was, um, a scholar. And that was kind of, uh, what we did for a lot of time when we would spend time on weekends, he would like go to the library and I would just, you know, take the books out. And so I got really interested in history, uh, as a kid. And that was, that was kind of how it, you know, happened for me. Everyone else kind of was off to become a lawyer or a doctor. And I was like, well, I guess got to find something to do. And that was, um, you know, I decided I, I wanted to teach history, you know, and uh, then eventually, yeah, I just took it all the way to the end and got the PhD, stayed in school longer than everybody else. <laughs> do, you, do you have a favorite time of American history or specialty? Yeah, no, I specialized as a historian. Again, when I was teaching full time, I was, I was a specialist in the 19th century, uh, 19th century U.S. But, you know, I taught 19th and 20th century U.S. history uh, pretty in pretty much uh, – you know, all the way through. I, I actually really enjoy teaching uh, the 1950s, actually, mm-hmm. more than anything else, kind of thinking about the transition from World War II off to, up, through, uh, up through the Great Society and up to uh, basically the hippie era, for lack of a better term. And that was always interesting to me, the 1950s, is sort of that effort by people to try to return to more normal life after the war and after the Depression. I always thought that was really an intriguing period. But, uh, yeah, I mean, anything, anything uh, cultural... Anything about U.S. culture is always interesting to me, um, art, uh, music, literature. 
Yeah, I, I think the best music comes from that anyway. Um, both sides of the Atlantic is the post-war baby boom. And, you know, you had bands like The Who that and Small Faces that grew up with rationing and all of that on the other side. And that's why they're all so small. And here in America, you know, if, if you were born, say, in the 50s, you went through the whole thing of post-war, right. you know, of all the progress. And then you had Elvis and then the Beatles. And, and then it lands into the stuff that I grew up with and you write about. And I think that's a great time to, to focus on. Because it was different than anything yeah, else, and it'll never be the same. Yeah, that's really a great point. I mean, I always think that's so interesting to think about guys like uh, Roger Waters and Townsend and Keith Richards and all those guys who had the you know basically World War II in their their experiences. And you know, I did this book on Ted Templeman, and uh, that was one of the, the Ted's earliest memories. So Ted was born in 1942, um, and you know that's just kind of his earliest memories as a three or four year old. It's kind of the B-52s flying over. You know, even after the war, like the very end of the war, the B-52s flying where he yeah. lived in California, they'd be moving from place to place. That's like his earliest memories of, of, um, of childhood. Remembering his uncles came back from the war and they were, you know, you hadn't seen this person and suddenly he comes in the door, it's your uncle coming and he's had four years old. And it's like the guy's wearing like all these medals on his chest and everything. You know, that was, that was hugely important, mm-hmm. um, you know, to all those guys. And it's really, uh, it's something that was a bridge between, as you said, between the 1940s and the 1970s for, and 80s for uh, understanding music for sure. And and I really don't think that rock and roll on the level that it happened and ending in stadium rock or big rock, as David Lee Roth calls it, would have happened without that, without that time. I think it's mm-hmm. very important, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because those families that had to go through the war and the rationing, they didn't want that for their families when they got older. You know, it's just right. it's just a whole thing. But the, the sociology of all of it is fascinating to me. Yeah, I think that's the other thing that, was apparently uh, obvious, I think, to maybe to people who grew up in Pasadena, but, uh, you know, they kind of had to clue me in. You know, it's like, there was a, obviously, it's the baby boom, right? And sort of like, yeah, there's tons of young people. Like, I, you know, I first started talking to people, I didn't quite click for me immediately, like, this is a historian, but then you start to realize, I'm like, oh, there's like, you know, these, all these huge, you know, there's huge high schools, mm-hmm. you know, because they're, like you mentioned, there's all these, these kids who are, are baby boomers. Um, they would have been, you know, born in 53, 54, 55, 56, all these baby boomer kids. And so the, you know, place like Pasadena, very, very middle class suburbs. There were tons and tons, yep. Tons and tons and tons of kids. And that's part of what, what fed into the, obviously the growth of rock music, but also on the local level, why you could get 800 kids in the backyard, 300 kids in the backyard, a thousand kids in the backyard, because there were, you know, it was like, there was like a lot of young people, a yeah. lot. And you know, 10 bands lot. in each high school too, which doesn't happen anymore either. Right. 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 And that's, the, and that's the other thing, too, that rock was really was so important at that moment. I'm not telling anyone anything that they don't know, but you're right. It's just there were so many bands. And that was, you know, it was interesting to think about that in terms of on the on the passing level, just the competition against against you know, between bands. We talk about Roth's Red Ball Jet. Mm-hmm. That was that was the competition band against Mammoth. They were the ones who were sort of saw themselves as the Mammoth's rivals and stuff. And you know, that, that would never happen today. You know, there would never be like rival high schools in a band in 2020. It was just not going to happen. Um, you know, so to sort of think about that as, as people living through the era of Woodstock and Jimi Hendrix and Monterey pop and sort of going, yeah, I want to form a band and I want to have a, you know, I want to have a stage in somebody's backyard and I want to spotlight. Yeah. And I want to do all these things. And that's sort of what, you know, what, how it played out. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in Cleveland and it was on a smaller level and obviously didn't have the success Van Halen did. But it was the same thing. You would go see rival bands or you'd go see bands play in the garage. And it just doesn't happen anymore. And it's sad. And I think in your book, you describe that very well. Like, you know, people don't realize that the the influence Alex Van Halen had on this band. It was his band. 
you know, like, yeah, like you said, because he could beat everyone up, but also like, you know, I've, I've always heard like Van Halen never had a true live album back in the day because Alex didn't want one because Zeppelin didn't have one. So, you know, right. I mean, it, but I think that's, I think that's accurate. Yeah. hundred percent accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just those little things that you like, you really tie all those pieces together. The gold top Les Paul, you tell the story of it, you know, their father buying that and that, that sparkled Ludwig, which I've, I saw those in concert when they opened for Sabbath. And then you realize those were their yeah. first big things that they had and they still had them when they were signed. It's amazing. Yeah. The, uh, the story of the Van Halen family, which has become much more familiar to people after Eddie passed away, unfortunately, it, it, uh, you know, it really, to me was so inspiring and Roth too, in a different sort of way, obviously Roth's as people read the book, Roth's life journey from a teenager, from a young person, all the way up to where he became a rock star is super, I think super, super inspiring. Yes. But, uh, the brothers, you know, coming to America, not speaking in English and then being able to, bond over music and form this band and then have a father who really, to be honest, you know, never really had a much of a music career in America beyond, you know, he played, but he played locally and was very, you know, it's, it was really, really hand to mouth for those guys with uh, the father because he was playing uh, clarinet and, and uh, saxophone and basically polka bands, you know, and, and it, it was never going to be like it was for him in Europe where he was much more of a established jazz musician to have those guys, I can just imagine the pride that the, the their parents felt when they, you know, their 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 sons go from playing backyards two years before to playing Anaheim Stadium yeah. in '78 or Long Beach Arena in '78. You know, it must have been incredible, especially for their father, who you know sacrificed a lot and obviously must have had a lot of bitter bitter nights of just sort of frustration with where he was at musically. That it just you know went from being on the radio in Holland to basically. You know, just like you know, playing at the local lodge. You know, that was what he what he did. I'm sure he enjoyed playing the music, but it had to be a you know a uh, something a hard pill to swallow when you think I'll come to America and I'll be able to build a better life. And it was you know, it was really his sons who really were the ones who were able to uh, catapult um, them all to a, a better a better life, which is a really cool story. Yeah, it is. I mean, it it can be the land of opportunity, but you got to work your ass off, and those guys definitely did. And like you said about Roth, like. He knew he didn't know he didn't have to be a good singer. He knew what he was going to be and he had the drive to do it. And every successful band has that person, whether it's Malcolm Young or Gene Simmons or you know what I mean? Right. Like you have to have right. that person in your band or your band's not going to make it. Even bands I don't like, like Nikki Six was that guy. You have to have that person. Right. Right. And I think they really did well in their partnership. And I, I you know, I always think it's interesting people criticize Roth for this and that. And I, you know, I think there's plenty of things to criticize Roth about in terms of, um, you know, whatever it's, his live performances at times, whatever, you, you know, like anybody you can kind of like find the things to cut him down about. Uh, but you know, for, for the, the terms of the work ethic and the dedication to the cause and the idea of building the band, they couldn't have found a better partner yeah. than the Van Halen brothers. You know, and he was like, he was the guy who really helped lead them. And as you mentioned, Alex was, was very, very important in that too. Alex was definitely, uh, very driven. Eddie was very driven. All those guys were Mike was, I mean, obviously those guys worked their asses off, but to have someone like Roth who had a vision for them from the get go of something bigger. And I think that's where you look at, you know, like when all the other stuff is said and done, you look at someone like Roth and you think to yourself, you know, I, I think the Van Halen brothers would have made it musically and been on records in some way. They, they were too talented not to be, they would have been playing on records, mm -hmm. but to have Van Halen become so huge and become the cultural phenomenon, it was this sort of Van Halen that we all know and love. And Roth is so important to that. I mean, I think that's uh, a, a given and it's not even just de debatable. Yeah. So for someone to think about Roth as well as someone who was 
was wealthy. I mean, you know, his father was extreme. His father was extremely wealthy and could have, he could have been the guy who just said, screw it. I'm just going to lay back and sponge off my dad for the rest of my life. Really. He could have. Um, but to basically say, no, I'm going to be the guy who's out there two in the morning, pushing the PA system on top of my little car and strapping it yeah. down and driving from Pomona, you know, at a biker bar back to Pasadena and do this night after night, making no money. It's, it, you really have to, um, tip your hat to someone like Roth. Yeah, and he was very protective of the band. He's the one who suggested the the brother's name for the band name. I mean, there's stuff you don't think about that he would do, but he was that person, which is great. Yeah, he um, <laughs> he always talks about that. I was just like, it's the biggest mistake. I was joking, but he's like, I should have named the band Roth or something. It's like it's kind of funny to think about that, but he's probably not wrong. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It might have been a different story. If the band was, if the band was named Roth, it might have been a different story. Yeah, for sure. Well, he had an opportunity <laughs> as the left Van Halen to just call himself Roth, but he kept he kept the whole solo name. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another huge person that we want to talk about in the Van Halen history is Ted Templeman, and you wrote that book, and it was released in April of 2020, correct? Uh, so somewhat yeah. somewhat yeah. recently, which is fantastic. And I remember the word on the streets, and at least in rock and roll, it was a big deal because everyone knows who Ted Templeman is, but there's no history on him, and so. The fact that there was a, finally a book out um, of this platinum-selling producer that has all the Van Halen history and the Sammy Hagar, the Montrose, the um, the history is so big, and everyone's always curious on what his story was. And then finally, that this book comes out only just recently, and um, I learned a lot from it. I mean, well, let's—I just want to get into that with you. Um, how sure. did you, how did you get into that? Uh, I know is, I'm assuming after the Van Halen history you thought the same, like, let's get into Ted's history as well. No one, no one knows that story. Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, interviewed Ted for the Van Halen rising book and that was a real thrill for me. And then I got an email about, you know, when the advanced copies of the book were out and it was like Van Halen rising from Ted Templeman. And I was like, Oh, I don't know. I just like, thinking, <laughs> I was like, I was like, Oh no. I was like, you know, I hadn't talked to him. Like, I was like, Oh, oh I mean, I fucked something up. And, but he was like, actually it was like a super nice email. I, was like, I love the book. It was great. I got to read it. You know, we had gotten an advanced copy of it. We'd sent him an advanced copy of the press set. And so he actually was nice enough to do the book signing with me in Pasadena. I launched the book in Pasadena and, uh, I invited him down on kind of like a whim. I was like, well, oh, if you want to come down, he's like, okay. Wow. And I was like, really? And That's he was amazing. like, yeah, he's like, yeah, I used to live in Pasadena. He used to, well, he used to live in Pasadena. And actually, um, as I learned when I did the book with him, which I didn't know at the time, I don't think, he had actually applied for a job at Romans, which is the bookstore in Pasadena, the big independent bookstore there, when he was like uh, scrapping after, you know, kind of like the lull in his music career to his producing career. And so he, I think he was intrigued by the location and everything. So he, in, uh, you know, soon after that, I asked him about doing a book. He was kind of like, no, nah, you don't want to do a book of me. And you don't want to do a look at me, whatever. And, you know, and I was like, well, let me look into it. Let me see. And he's like, okay. And I, I just started like kind of digging around and doing some research. And I kind of, you know, kind of talked to him some more about it. And eventually, you know, he never had said no, but he never like had said yes either. And then I was sort of like, look, I said, look, I was, you know, he worked with Captain Beefheart and the Doobie Brothers mm-hmm. and Little Feet and Carly Simon and uh, you were an artist and you, you had this really interesting childhood because we were, you know, he would send me these emails and kind of tell me these little anecdotes. You, you grew up as a jazz, a guy who played jazz trumpet and a drummer. Probably people don't know that. Right. And uh, he's like, all right, look, if you're going to do a book on me, as long as you focus it on the artists, like about me making the records with the artists and it's not going to be some sort of melodramatic <laughs> chapter after chapter about, it, you know, like basically like, you know, like, um, you know, his point was basically as long as it's going to be largely focused on making the records 
and the songs, I'll do it. And so that's what I tried to do was, was to make it about, um, you know, he's a pretty private person, even in the book, like people are like, Oh, you should have done more of this private life. I'm like, well, you know, we've got kids and you know, it it wasn't meant to be that type of like Ted Temple embarrasses his soul for the public. He was, he was much more interested in, in trying to do justice to like, you know what? I got to work with Michael McDonald. I got to hear Michael McDonald play in a garage, you know, like a garage to audition. And he ended up being the biggest pop star in the world. It was an incredible experience for me. He, you know, he, he like has so much respect for his artists. I mean, even people he disagreed with um, and fought with. I mean, he just is, you know, he just, I think as a, as a, as a musician himself, as he said, sort of like, he was always kind of a mediocre pop star, right? He wasn't a great singer. He was a good drummer but he wasn't like, you know, a great drummer. He was a, you know, he had this musical talent, but it was never translatable into the type of um, appeal and skill that the people he worked with. So I think he has a musician himself. He had so much like for someone like Eddie Van Halen or Alex Van Halen or like, you know, Tommy Johnson, the Doobie brothers. He just had such respect for these people. And so felt like he was so, lucky in some ways to kind of get the opportunity to work with such an incredible artist and get the job at Warner brothers and stuff. So I think that was what his, his approach was on it. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't, and he also didn't want it to come off as like, which was, which was great for me, to be honest with you, a lot of these books get written and it's like, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, just, you know, na- name the, the famous, famous person. It's like, uh, I don't know. It's Joan Collins. Sorry. That's like, I'm trying to find a new wow. person. Wow. Good one. I, that's a good I'm, trying to, I'm trying to find a totally neutral. I don't want to like insult any musicians or anyone we know, but so like some, it's Joan Collins. And it's like, you write, you read it and you're like, well, she didn't write this, right? Somebody else wrote it. Like he wanted to be like, actually, he was like, I want to make sure people know you wrote it. And I didn't write it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You know, because he, I, you know, because he didn't, you know, I, I think he was, I always try to phrase it the right way. You know, it wasn't like he was like calling me up going, we got to do a book. When are you going to start right. the book? He was kind of like, all right, you want to do a book? Okay. As long as it's about the artists and we're paying tribute to them, I'm okay with that. Like he, like, like he, it was like, it was totally my, I was telling you, it was totally my idea and I had to talk him into it. So I think that was where he was like, I don't want people to think like, oh, I have to be like, oh, I'm so important. I need to write a book about this stuff. I mean, really, that was really important to him um, that, uh, you know, I was out in front, which was actually like, it was amazing. I mean, but you know, it's the way, just the way it worked out. Obviously you work with other people and they have a different, you know, we can all think of the people who might have a different viewpoint on that. They want to be out front totally and they want to basically take the person who does the research and does the writing and kind of minimize that. And that being said, um, you know, Ted wrote me very, very long emails, and, you know, I got, I had lots of first person interviews with that hours and hours of first person interviews sitting in the same room with Ted talking. So, so it's Ted, you know, it's Ted's words as told to me, but you know, obviously it's like, exactly. you can't just like type up, you can't just, you can't just like type up someone's conversation and like stick it in a book. So, yeah. you know, you well, that's what it says on the cover. Ted Templeman is told to Greg Renoff. So, I mean, it's very yeah. important. You get that across to the audience. I think, I think what you mentioned there about him playing, but he was never big and that shows in his production. It, it's like, there's a producer nowadays. that's massive. Dave Cobb, that was the same way, had a bunch of bands. Oh, right. oh up, yeah, sure. But, it his ability to play. I, I've had bands that I was managing at the time record with him, and then it all comes out. You can see it. You know, maybe his career didn't do what he wanted it to, but it all comes out in his own stuff. So, like with Ted, you can tell. Like even when he produces a band like Cheap Trick, woke up with a monster. It sounds a little bit different because it's Cheap Trick being produced by Ted. So it's not the the classic right. Cheap Trick sound. Enough of it's there because it's them playing, but you can tell that his influences are there, and it's. It's great that he can put a stamp on there. Not so much like an Ezrin does, where it's just his total project. You know what I mean? He lets it breathe a little bit. Yeah, Ted was really always of the mindset 
that he didn't want there to be a Ted Templeman sound. I mean, he talked about that at the time, if you read like interviews from the seventies, he was talking about that and he told, he was very um, adamant about that with me saying like, I want to be sure, you know, make sure you get that in there was that, you know, he, you know, he looked like a Phil Spector or something like that. There was like yeah. a sound, yeah. you know, we could all kind of go like, you kind of go through and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. It's like, it's like, that's one way of producing, but Ted was, you know, Nick, the Nicolette record, uh, records don't sound like the cheap trick record or like the Van Halen record or the captain Beefheart record. They were, mm-hmm. you know, he sort of, his, his sort of approach was try to like, listen to the, listen to the group and then say, okay, here's what I hear. And I want to accentuate in this particular group rather than sort of going, I want the, the drums to all sound the same. Like the drums on the, on the, um, you know, the, on the drums on the Juby records don't sound like the drums in the Van Halen records. Obviously, yeah. that type of thing. Well, yeah. when, when we had Jimmy Deanne in here from Bullet Boys, he said, "Oh, uh, yeah, Jimmy." Yeah, he said, "I want Alex Van Halen's drum sound," and yeah. he said, "Ted said, no, we're finding the Jimmy Deanna sound. We're not copying anything from anybody." Yeah. So yeah, he was very. Yeah. He's always been very yeah. clear about that. Jimmy was a great um, person to talk to about Ted because he had some great Ted stories about just you know, kind of like. Ted, Ted was a drummer and I, I, Jimmy may have told you guys that story and I'll, I won't steal Jimmy's story, but basically how Ted, Jimmy was really nervous and Ted really yeah. basically yeah. talked him off the ledge and yeah. like, and helped him, helped him. It's great. I mean, it's really, it was an amazing story. And I was like, well, that's what a good producer does. It's sort of, you know, it's more than just going, we need to get the sounds. It's about the psychology of working with artists and trying to get them in the right headspace to perform exactly. like a coach would like a, you know, like a football coach or something or a basketball coach. Yep. Um, yeah. Jimmy's a great, great guy and has um, some cool, cool stories. Yeah, he he really does, and you know it's one of those things like where, where Ted and Van Halen. Anytime I've been in Sunset Sound, that's what I think about when I'm in that control room. When when there's a band in that live room, and you think of the pictures when they're recording Van Halen too. I don't think of Alice Cooper. I don't think of Led Zeppelin. I don't think of Humble Pie. I think of those Van Halen records because of the magic that they made with Ted in that place. It's almost like that's their room now, and I love that about that place. Yeah, the uh, the Sunset Sound studios were so important to Ted as well. And that was really one of the more fascinating things for me as someone who loved music. You know, I really had to get to understand, you know, uh, as best I could, which is as a, you know, someone who never recorded in a recording studio, never worked in a recording studio about, you know, what was special about a place like Sunset. For Ted, you know, he first started working there in 66, I'm pretty sure, 1966. In the fall of 66, he recorded, um, with Harper's Bazaar in there, and that was their hit, feeling groovy. They recorded in mm-hmm. that room, and so for Ted, it was like a second home. You know, he recorded in there for for with bands, and they recorded it. Um, excuse me, as a, as an artist with his band, and then he recorded all sorts of bands there as well. So yeah, it's just uh, it was always a natural place that he wanted to record more than any place else. And they would have to work at Amigo, which was the Warner Brothers Studios, which is now gone, or um, some other studios around LA when uh, it became more difficult to maybe work. In, uh, sunset because it was getting to be you know it just sometimes hard to get booked booked there it was just really uh for budgets like it was just such an incredible studio but yeah what a what a cool uh a cool set of records that were made there by by templeman yeah amigo is now a parking garage i, I think i know that's where like, van Halen like tragic yeah and it's crazy tragic. how tragic it's tragic and le- reading your book it's crazy how ted knew that sammy was supposed to be the singer in van halen at some point from an early early time he was working on his solo albums and uh montrose montrose way before all the van halen stuff and it's crazy how you know he he was he saw the future from a decade before 
Yeah, that is like it is almost like that. It's almost like kind of hard to believe when you think when I, I first heard the story. I was like, wait a minute. And he was like, well, he told me that like the first time I talked to him. He was like, well, you know, I just really had some real real worries about Dave, and I got him into the studio, and the first time we did the demo, and it was just really there were some parts that really I was like, oh, this is not going to work. I just <laughs> I was just really worried whether he could whether he could pull it out pull it off but he said this band is so great you know again ted is sort of playing with ideas and going oh i got this guy sammy you know hagar he just montrose had broken up and he was a solo artist and you know it was just a kind of a you know an idea that ted kind of mulled over and stuff like that but yeah uh but ted is very clear in the book that and he he, uh, told me this i mean over and over again that you know van halen never would have made it without roth basically meaning that meaning the van halen we all love like that it never would have been the same like van halen would have been a band and they may have done okay mm-hmm. with Sammy, but it never would have been like the thing where you're like Van Halen with, with, with Sammy out of the gate. You know, that's just, and that's, that's him saying, I love Sammy as a person. I have enormous respect for Sammy as a musician. He's an incredible singer. He would just you know, talk about like all like working with Sammy was so great. He was always so fun. I love Sammy, but he was just like, I would have made a huge mistake. It just wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked. Basically the chemistry wouldn't have been right. Well, yeah, Van Halen was more than just that. Van Halen was the camaraderie. It was the way they joked around together in interviews. I mean, we've always talked about on this show how when Van Halen landed like a UFO, all of these bands like Pat Travers Band, Foghat, Derringer, all these bands that were poised to be the next thing, even Ted Nugent after Double Live Gonzo, Van Halen erased that. And a lot of that is not only Eddie's guitar playing, but because of Roth, because none of those had a Roth, not even Ted Nugent. You know what I mean? Roth was a whole different beast. Right, right. I mean, I think that's the other thing that's really interesting about Van Halen's arrival on the scene, I don't, which I probably didn't do enough of that with on Van Halen Rising. But you're right, like, like, uh, you know, uh, the Pat Travers, all those, all those, um, uh, Frank Marino, all those guitar yeah. players like that, sort of got, you know, kind of eclipsed by Eddie. Um, and they really did. They really got eclipsed by Eddie in part because they were kind of like they were like the guitar hero prototype of the mid '70s in that sort of way. And you know, once Eddie came along, it was like Pat who. And yep. Pat Travers is a great guitar player. Great, Don't get yeah. me wrong. Like Frank Marino, Frank Marino. I love Frank Marino. You know, it's like fun. I love listening to his records, but it's like, it just, it just took it to a different, like you said, a different stratosphere, like the UFO landing. Like we said, it's just, it's really interesting about that, um, that era. And that's, and that's why Eddie talked about it. like all these guys were, were really kind of jerks to him. You know, Steve Perry, uh, Steve Perry, Joe Perry, Steve Perry, Joe Perry, all, all the guitar players who were kind of like snubbing him, you know, cause they, they kind of knew they like this kid, you know, we gotta we gotta try to keep this kid down, you know, because it's <laughs> yeah. cause change it. I mean, really, I mean, really, it's true. And so, um, and it's kind of uh, uh, something again, like that that moment in time when Van Halen came along. I hadn't really done enough with that sort of like the, the guitar hero leap forward there, probably with some of those other guys who were around at the time who were kind of considered the you know again like, like you who you go see it like the California World Music Festival or go see it like the California Jam or something like that in seventy seven seventy eight. Those guys all were just we're just blown off the map by Eddie. It just, just was just the reality. It was just the way it was. And it wasn't only the playing. I'm telling you, it was. And this is something you touched on earlier. It was the smile, and they they had a way. Whether they're opening for Sabbath or on their own, they brought you to their backyard party. And the only other band that I I had ever been able to see that could hold a crowd like that was when I would go see Queen. Like they understood the joke. You know what I mean? Like Queen was in on it. And with Van Halen, right. it was the same thing. Like. They had all that experience playing for whether it's a 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people in the backyard. They made 20,000 people there to see old aging Black Sabbath. And this is from my personal experience. I felt like I was in California. They were smiling. They were laughing. It was so refreshing. There was no like these mean looking faces and just being down or, you know, strung out on coke or whatever. You know what I mean? It was just excitement, energy, 
and it was the eighties already in the seventies. Right. Right. Great. Right. And that's, and I, people go on YouTube, you listen to bootleg uh, recordings. They're up there. You, you know, listen to the eruption from 1978 and, and Ross would say it like regularly, the guitar player, the guitar of the 1980s is here or something like that. He'd yeah. say it's 78. And he was like, I mean, I was like, he predicted the future. He's yeah. like, he totally predicted the future. He's like, exactly right. This is the blueprint for guitar playing in the 80s. Right here. Yeah. Right <laughs> in front of your eyes. Uh, in front fantastic. of your ears. It was amazing. Yeah, it's so cool you got to see them then. Um, because, you know, it's it's having that. I saw them in the 84 tour, but to kind of see them out of the box with, with Sabbath, that's sort of me the holy grail of kind of thinking about what Van Halen was like. Because that's the sort of, that's the sort of like meteor from outer space. Like, what's this? Yep. Like, what is this? What is this? You know, I, I was like a, people talking about like go ahead yeah. yeah I was a dumb kid like so Gene Simmons I was lived in Cleveland he did an interview on WMMS and he mentioned Cheap Trick and he mentioned Van Halen so every day I'd go to this record store Sound of Music and I would just do you have this Van Halen album they just, who's this and then one day they're like that album's in and we got it and man it blew, wow. blew me away wow just took my head wow. off you know and wow. I saw him every tour up through 84 I never saw him again after that that wasn't, you know, that's, that's what I want to see. My brother saw him with Journey, which is crazy. Um, so, yeah. So, um, what do you plan on doing next? I don't want to take up all, your whole evening. I, I could sit here for hours. One day mm-hmm. I'm going to buy you a steak or a beer. We're just going to talk forever because it's fascinating. <laughs> so, but what are, what are your plans uh, you know, here? Sonny and Cher book, please? Yeah, I mean, oh, God. Uh, I, I, I have... Uh, I have another Van Halen book in me that what? I want to write. Wow. The, the, challenge, the challenge for me right now is that I have children that are home from school full time. And, and so I, I'll leave it to that. You guys can figure out the rest. Yeah. The, you know, the, uh, the uh, lifestyle that I enjoyed as a writer and whatever else was going on in terms of my normal family arrangement has kind of been upended. And so, yeah. um, you know, I haven't really been able to get going on that, but you know, I, 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 uh, I yeah, I'll just say that, you know, I, I, it would be something I would like to focus on a later era of Van Halen, uh, particularly the eighties. I'm really interested in the 1980s period of time. Um, you know, and again, not just necessarily rehashing the breakup, but the entire, um, evolution of Van Halen and, and basically how they were, uh, having to, you know, um, enter a whole different market. I mean, obviously the eighties market was very different with Bon Jovi and some of these other groups. It's interesting to me how they, they sort of continue to sort of power along and then different, very different sound in some sort of ways in a different context. And, um, we're able to remain a premier group and, uh, you know, that's kind of a, the kind of the general idea, but yes, I would, I would love to tell you the guys that I'm like, you know, I don't know if COVID hadn't happened, I'd probably be like, well, I'm like, you know, getting the home stretch in this one. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, I'm sure you guys have all have dealt with different circumstances around that. It's just, it's, uh, it's just the way it is. Yeah. Well, no one's talked about the Gary Sharon era, so maybe we should get a book on that one too. <laughs> well, I wish, I wish, honestly, I wish Gary would talk about it more. I mean, I, yeah. actually, it's, a, Gary, it's yeah. a fascinating period. It really is. Um, you know, I always keep hoping, and I'm joking about this, but like, there's going to be a leak suddenly of the Gary Sharon tape, and we'll be able to hear the second Van Halen record. And I, I know Gary would never do that, um, <laughs> even if he does. Have, I assume he, I assume he does have a tape. I don't know, but there's always that mythical, you know, second Gary Sharon era record that was supposedly like you know, 60% done or something like that, and before um, that era of Van Halen came to an end. But yeah, I mean, Gary, I, I loved Extreme, and I love Extreme, and I always, I always think that, uh, yeah, Gary would have a very interesting. You know, as sort of a outside perspective on uh, Van Halen, I mean that it's sort of like you like kind of come in from the outside and you're joining this group and you have the, the dynamics. I'm sure he saw things very differently 
than yeah, other yeah. people would have because he sort of got dropped in the middle of this group. You're like, oh, suddenly you're like dealing with the Eddie Alex dynamic, oh, yeah. right, within a band. I'd be, I'd be really fascinated, especially for him, obviously being a guy who's a vet himself and been in bands for a long, long time. It'd be really interesting to hear how he, because, you know, understandably so, he's, you know, he's not a super, super public guy in what he says or whatever. But yeah, I'd be real. I would like, if you listen to Gary, we would like to, have, we would like to have like the, the detail, you know, he's talked about it, but I'd like to hear like, the, you know, the blow by blow sort of, um, you know, the whole evolution of, of that Van Halen album. And then really what really, really what happened with the, with the, uh, the second record and, and some, uh, hear those songs, of course. Eddie's playing on that album. I don't care what anyone said. His playing on that album is great. It's <laughs> it's, it's probably like uh, working at Disneyland when the magic's just gone. When you have to work, be in the band of Van Halen, you see all the inner workings. <laughs> well, it's 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 tough. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, right. it's, it's right. work. I mean, work. have you heard from anyone on the inside that that about your book? You know, I only person I ever heard, and it was secondhand. Uh, this is this is a funny story. Is that uh, a friend of mine? One well, a friend of mine, a guy I know on Facebook. Um, got to talk to Mike Anthony and had my book. I, I don't know if he was like a was like a meet and greet. He brought the book along and wanted Mike to sign a picture in the book, like a picture of Mike. And Mike was like, "Oh yeah, good book, man. This is a good book. He got it. He got it pretty right, or something. He got it right, or something like that. You know. And so, but I never heard. I never heard from anybody else. Um, I never heard from Eddie, Alex, Dave, nobody else. Uh, never heard a word. So I have no idea. Um, you know, beyond, beyond that. But that was kind of a nice thing. I basically, the, the guy sent me a picture of the signature and he mentioned to me that when he showed Bunk the book, Mike was like, Oh yeah, he got this like, he got a pretty, pretty damn right. Or whatever. Like, you know, so that was, I thought that was a good, a good endorsement. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that book. any day. Greg, yeah. got, <laughs> all right, Greg, Greg got a pretty damn right or something like that, you know, Michael Anthony or something, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, Roth is really, you know, I, I was, um, uh, how would I put it? You know, he, he really, kind of just engages on what he wants to engage on in terms of his own stuff. Yeah. Like he, you know, and he very rarely like engages when we, when he does an interview, I always think it's like, it's what Dave wants to say. He's not going to answer yeah. questions. Right. Oh, so yeah. like, yeah. You know, he does, but like, so I guess it's like, you know, he's not going to answer questions. And Eddie now are very, you know, just very, they were just disinterested in that stuff. They just really weren't interested in the, in, in, uh, legacy stuff like that. So it was, uh, you know, I have no idea what the, uh, what their what their take on it is. I would hope they would realize it came from a place of wanting to preserve the history and all that stuff. But um, yeah, uh, that was my that was my cool story. So if I ever get to meet Mike, I really like to face to face. I interviewed him for the book, but I'd love to like say, that's, <laughs> that's would, you, would you scroll that on my book or whatever? <laughs> scroll your like you know scroll something like that on my book, my copy of the book. That was cool. Well, Greg, you wrote a book that really captures it for the people that were there, for the people that wish they were there. And for the people that will never, ever see anything like that, I can't thank you enough for your time. Um, I look forward to see what you have coming up next. I mean, you, you wrote an all-time class. I've read just about every rock book there is, and this is definitely in the top three, if not the best one that I've ever oh, read. That's really great. That, that, I appreciate that. It's really, really kind of you to say that. And uh, yeah, it was great talking to you guys. I really appreciate how, uh, you know, well, you guys know the topic. It's cool. I mean, and I like... Uh, Let's hope. Let's hope we get a uh, Wolfgang record going and get some yeah. get a new chapter of Van Halen um, mammoth going forward. It's going to be cool. I'm looking forward to that too. It's, yeah. you know, that's a really uh, something to look forward to in 2021, which after a crappy 2020. Yeah. That, where where can everyone great. find you on social media? Uh, yeah, probably Twitter is probably the best place to find me. And I'm at Greg Renoff. Um, you know, I'm on Facebook and uh, as well. But I yeah, I, I spend most of my time on on. Uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm a little less active on there, but yeah, Twitter at Greg Renoff. And, uh, yeah, I'm um, also, you can always email me through van Halen rising.com. 
just like it sounds. Um, there's a link there, and I get I get those emails and I answer them. And so, uh, yeah, love to love to chat with people and looking forward to uh, always talking Van Halen. Right on. Van Thank time. you so much, Greg. Have yeah. a great rest of your evening. Light them up, Greg. Okay, Thank pleasure, you. guys. All right, All right. Appreciate it. Thanks. Bye.